I'm excited. I'm glad Miles said some of those things I was counting on him saying, so that worked out really, really well. Um, I'm pumped. Like he said, I'm excited because of what I think the Lord spoke to me this week, Um, and so I've been praying and hoping and believing all week that it's going to impact your life and meet you right where you are, and that's not something that I'm able to do, but that's only by the Spirit. So in this moment, just I would ask that you tear down the walls, let go of what's kind of going on, and just ask the Lord to, to decipher take in that you would hear what you need to hear from, from what happens right now. So, but to start, I do want to just talk about myself a little bit, introduce myself. I know a lot of you, I don't know a lot of you. So I figured before I start preaching the word of God, maybe you need to know a little bit about me. Um, so Miles did mention all the things I'm going to mention, but I'll, I'll talk about them as well. Um, I did just get married at the beginning of the summer to, yes, yes. I mean, you have no idea how much you should cheer that because it's a big deal. <laughs> Um, to literally the most amazing, most beautiful, most wise woman in the world. Um, if you don't know the fitners, you're missing out or you haven't been to church here f- for a while. Um, so it's ridiculous that I got to marry Anne because um, she's amazing. Other thing, Miles always says that I'm from Buffalo, and I want to put that straight. I lived in Buffalo for one year of my life. <laughs> one year. My dad grew up in Buffalo, and so I am a Bills fan, so you can feel pity for me in that area, but I'm believing we've been bad for a while. Dynasty's coming. Everybody get ready. The Patriots are going to suck. Um, <laughs> listen, I'm just believing it has to happen eventually, <laughs> but they live in Buffalo now, so throughout college, I would travel back and forth from there, um, but they both went to Auburn, so I was actually born in Auburn, lived here till I was about five or six, and then I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., so Northern Virginia, that area. If you're from Northern Virginia, I'd love to hear from you. I weirdly met a couple people from Western New York throughout my time in Auburn, but I've met nobody from Northern Virginia. So I don't know what the deal is. Northern Virginia's a little bit closer, but maybe they just all stay over there. I don't know. Um, But with that, I did come here not knowing anybody, even though I was born here. I knew nobody when I came. I just came because I was like, my parents went to Auburn. I love Auburn. I'm a huge Auburn fan. I want to go to Auburn. And so I came here knowing nobody, and my identity was totally in everything that you would think a high school boy's identity would be in, Um, sports and popularity and friends and everything like that. And if you can't tell, I'm not a D1 athlete, Um, so all of my identity was gone when I got to Auburn. I I didn't really know who I was, and so I grew up in an amazing family. I'm the oldest of three. Um, We grew up going to church, so I really knew all the Bible school answers. I, I know all the information, and I, and I said I knew Jesus for a really, really long time, but at that point, I kind of realized, I was like, I have no relationship with this God that I'm claiming, and so like Miles mentioned, I am a product of what God's done through this movement, and so it's been amazing to see, like Miles said, from 18 to 23, if you didn't know, a lot changes in your life and who you are um, in those years, and so it's been amazing for me to see and get to be a part of this movement during that whole time, and, and I just want to take a moment and thank you, Miles, because he did mention he's discipled me and led me for five years, but I've gotten to see uh, Miles on and off the stage, and who he is doesn't change. The way he loves the Lord and his family and the people around him don't change, and so I just want to thank you. He has led and believed in me important to me. Yeah, that's absolutely worthy of applause. So thank you. Um, I love this church. I'm for this church. I'm thankful for this church. There's a lot of amazing people 
here. So like Miles said, that's a little bit about me. We're going to jump into Philippians. If you haven't been here this summer, we've been walking through the book of the Bible called Philippians. It's going to be, um, it's a letter from the apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. He helped found this church. He's pouring into them. As Miles has said previously, this is probably his favorite church. Most of the other letters he writes are addressing major issues or problems they're having. When he's writing to Philippi, it's really just shoring up his relationship with them. He likes them. Uh, They're not having any really huge issues. So he's writing to them to shore up his missionary support from them because he's been in prison. So they're kind of wondering, why are we still giving you money if you're in prison? You can't really preach the word of God. But he's saying the word of Christ is still going out. And then the other reason he's writing is he's preparing them. He knows that this might be the last time he gets to communicate with them. He knows he's in prison. He knows he's going to be on trial for his life. And so he knows these are some of the last things i got to say. He's preparing them for life after his death. And so if you have your Bible, hold it up. Hold it up. You didn't know if I was going to do it. You weren't sure. I was actually told I wasn't allowed to preach unless I did this. So we got to keep track. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. All right, open up to Philippians 4. Verse 4. We're going to go verse 4 through 9. Should be on the screen. There we go. Let us read the word of God. Also, I just remembered I was supposed to say this. If you don't have a physical Bible, please talk to the info table. Miles has said it the past couple weeks. There's nothing more important that we can give you than a physical copy of the word of God. So if you don't have a Bible, please go see the info table after this, and we will get you one this week. All right, Philippians 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for these words that you spoke through your servant, Paul. I thank you for the way that your word is living and active and speaks to us even now. I just pray in this moment, Lord, that we would encounter you, because this is not about a stage or a band or somebody speaking or songs or lyrics or giving. It's about you. And so, Lord, I pray, come and move in this moment. I pray for every person here. I thank you that they're here because even being here is a step of faith, Lord. I pray that you would work in their hearts. Translate the words. I pray that you would speak through me to them today, that I would be useful to them, Lord, and that we would glorify you and experience you in this time. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you are a note taker, I'm going to go ahead and give you the title of my sermon right off the bat. It is the last thing Paul says, this sermon title, second to last message in our Philippine series is going to be called The God of Peace, The God of Peace. So we're going to be talking about peace. He's the one we're talking about. He's the one we are here to worship. So in this passage, we have five verses. Like I said, Paul is writing to shore up his relationship with Philippi and to prepare them for life after his death. And so in my Bible, this section is titled Final Exhortation. So this is really the last couple things that Paul is saying, hey, when I'm gone, these are the things that you need to do. 
There are a lot of commands in this passage. I've been studying Greek since January. It's going to come up a few times, so I'll figure I'll just talk about it now. Um, there are seven commands throughout this passage. You can probably pick them out in Greek that comes across in, in something they call the imperative mood. It, this is important for later, so I'm just telling you now. It's called the imperative mood. It's the mood of command. If somebody says or writes something in this mood, they're saying, you need to obey what I'm saying. They believe that they have authority to command this person. This is what you need to do. So there's actually seven commands in this passage. So I have seven points this morning. This is what happens when you let the Presbyterian kid preach. I'm kidding. I don't have seven points. Just two, just two. But I will try to point out those commands. They're pretty easy to find. But basically, this is the most dense passage where Paul is telling him, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do, this is what you have to do. So we need to keep track of those. We're going to start with verse 4 and 5, so if we can get those back up on the screen, perfect. Rejoice in the Lord always, I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, the Lord is near. So that phrase right there, the Lord is near, is why I'm kind of talking about these first, and then I'll talk about the rest of the passage. When somebody writes, the Lord is near, especially when Paul does it, what he's saying is, you need to pay attention to what I'm saying. It is a sobering but encouraging reminder of, hey, the Lord is coming soon. We don't have a ton of time. We actually don't know how much time we have left. And so when Paul says the Lord is near, he's saying, pay attention to what I just said. And he's actually using those two things that he said right before that to set up the rest of the passage. And so I'm going to call these two things he tells us to do right here in verse 4 and 5. I'm going to call them the front door. So the first one, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Those are the first two commands, rejoice, rejoice. And so if you've been in church, I'm sure you've heard it. The joy of the Lord is our strength. We rejoice. We have joy. We have joy in the midst of suffering. But this is a command to do it at all times, at all times. And so that seems challenging to us right now. But back in the Philippian church, they are facing persecution and death and the Judaizers that Miles talked about last week. And so the command to have joy always, to praise the Lord always, to proclaim that he is good and that he is in control is something that they would be like, that, that's going to be tough at times. But the, the thing that Paul is saying here is you have to have that heart of joy for anything else to happen through your life. And you have to have that heart of joy to set yourself up for, okay, Lord, what are you saying and what are you doing? And more than that, when we have joy as people of the Lord, the people around us start to notice that. I have a friend who told me this story this week, and he didn't know the story was going to be told. But he told me um, he was at work. He was just working at the beginning of a shift. And one of his coworkers, who um, doesn't go to church, we don't, we don't really know what her story is, but came up to him and was like, hey, you always seem to be excited. You always seem to have joy. You always seem to have happiness. What's kind of the deal with that? And now there are differences in personality, and this person is a bubbly person. But what I believe that this that this man's coworker noticed in him was the joy of the Lord. That no matter what was going on, that he kind of had hope that whatever was going to happen was going to work out for his good. And that conversation, her noticing that joy in him, actually led to a conversation about Jesus. And so when the world starts to see that we have joy when it doesn't make sense, they're going to be like, why do they have that and how can I get that? They're going to start to notice that there's something different about these people. They don't just act the same way that everybody else does. They have joy in the midst of suffering. So the first thing that we have to have is joy. The second thing is a little bit harder to find because it's a little confusing. In verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. So I read a bunch of different translations in this. I looked up the Greek word, and nobody quite knows how to translate it because it's a really kind of hard topic to get your mind around. So if you look at some of the other translations, gentleness is translated. It's translated um, 
patience or tolerance or graciousness. Graciousness is the one that I like. It's basically saying, I looked up this word in the dictionary, um, and it's basically the quality of not being legalistic. So he's saying, let your non-legalism be known to all. Paul is really, really clear if he's telling somebody to do thing, if, if he's telling the church to, to treat the church in this way, and when he's telling the church to treat everybody else this way. And he's saying, treat everybody with non-legalism. Let them know that you don't have legalism in you. And if you don't know what legalism is, it's really, really simple. Legalism is, here are the set of rules. If you don't follow them, you don't make it. It's, you have to do this, this, and this, otherwise we won't accept you. Legalism is what Miles talked about last week when he was talking about the Judaizers were saying, you have to eat this and do this and do this and do this, otherwise you can't come to know Jesus. That's not true. The grace of Christ doesn't make sense, and it's nothing that you can do to get to God. He came all the way to us. So Paul is saying, you have to let your non-legalism be known to everybody. Otherwise, they're going to be like, this is just like everything else, a bunch of rules I have to follow, not anything that's going to change my life. So those are the two front doors that we have to hold to. We have to have joy and graciousness, or non-legalism. So with that, let's get into, when you think about this passage, if you've been in church, this is the phrase that you probably think of. This is probably why you know this passage, and it is the phrase right at the beginning of verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Be anxious about nothing. And I want to preface this real quick. I am not a medical professional. There are medical conditions of the mind relating to anxiety and depression and all of these different things that I am not trained to treat. So I wanted to have that preface. That's not quite what we're talking about here. And I'm not trying to address all of those issues. I just wanted to say that before we started. But with that, do not be anxious about anything. I think there's two groups of people in here, two groups of response when you read this. Everybody, when they read this, I think they have two responses that they fall into. And you might not follow perfectly in one of these, but you're going to lean to one of these. And I think the first group is, that's impossible. You read this and you're like, not a chance, Paul. Okay, I, I can try to not be anxious about a lot, but I'm going to be anxious about something. It's the group where you know that whether it's your kids or your grade on that test or where you're going to go to college or where you're going to get a job or where you're going to live or who you're going to marry, there's something in day-to-day basics, even if it's just moving in, even if it's just getting to class on time, there are things that are going to stress you out no matter what you do about it. And so I think that's the majority. I think the majority of us would be in that group would identify, hey, I do have anxiety about things. I do get stressed about things. I do worry about things. And it's not funny, but it's kind of ironic. This Monday, the Lord gave me, I don't think the Lord gave me, I think I just, my flesh freaked out and had two examples of this. On my way to work on Monday to work on this sermon, I got stressed about three things on my way to work. I hadn't even done anything yet that morning. I had woken up next to my wife, which is a dream come true. I had worked out, which I don't really like, but I always feel good after. And I had eaten an awesome breakfast. So what in the world do I have to be stressed about after that? And I got stressed about three different things. I don't even remember what they are, honestly. But I got stressed about three things on the way to work. And then about an hour and a half into working on this sermon, I was getting stressed about, do I say this? Do I say this? Do I say this? And the Lord's like, hey, you're literally getting anxious about telling people to not be anxious. That doesn't make any sense. That's totally illogical. So that first group, you identify with me. You feel that, that there's no way we can do this, that I'm going to get anxious about something, whether it's this morning or after church or this afternoon. I'm going to get stressed about my week. There's something that's going to hit me. The second group, I think, is smaller, but I have identified with this group previously, so I want to talk about it and make sure that we're all on the same page, that we're This is talking to all of us. A lot of times this group I'm talking to is probably going to be college sophomores. 
this is a group where you read this and you're like, I don't really get anxious about things. I say college sophomores because that's when I kind of felt that. Like I heard this preached on and I was like, I don't know if that's me. The reason I think college sophomores is because you're like, I figured out college. I've had that freshman year, but I'm also not really worried about my future yet. And so I'm just, I'm chilling. I don't get anxious. Now there's some of you I know that are achievers and thinking about your future, your sophomore year, but that wasn't me. So I, I heard this and I was like, you know what? That's, that's not me. That doesn't apply to me. I don't really get anxious. And it was true. I didn't really stress out about things, but at the same time I was saying that I was riddled and racked with insecurity. I said, I'm not, I don't have anxiety, but I was paralyzed by what people thought of me. It's funny, Miles, this is true. I've been at this church for five years in September. My first Sunday was the end of September five years ago. I am willing to bet if you are in this church and you've been in this church for like five, four or five years, you probably don't remember me back then because I was so insecure. I just hid, came in, listened, and left. And that really helped me, but it is telling that people who were here don't remember me. Because I promise you, I was here every single Sunday. And yet my insecurity trapped me in isolation by myself. And so I started studying this word, what Paul's talking about. And I was like, I don't really know if they had a diagnosis of anxiety in Paul's time. And so I looked that up. I couldn't really find anything. They had a few things about mental illnesses and different things. But when we say anxiety in our world today, I think it kind of boxes it in and limits what Paul's talking about. And so I looked up this root word that Paul is saying here. And the word that he is using, the verb that says don't be anxious, is really rooted in a word that says worrying too much about anything, thinking too much about anything, having undue concern about anything, or having anything on your mind longer than it should be. And so to me, that expands it to where before I was like, okay, I'm not anxious, but I'm freaking out about what people think. I started thinking about it more, and I'm like, you know what, when I feel shame, it's stress about something I did in my past, A lot of times depression is rooted in stuff we did in our past and we're worrying and freaking out about different things. And so what I think Paul is talking to here is anyone in this room that has had that moment where something happens and that's all you can think about. That something affects you and and you're overwhelmed with your emotions because you can't control them and you can't even think straight to try to figure out what to do in the situation. And so if that doesn't apply to you, honestly, I think you should be in heaven because you might be perfect. But... I just want to make the point that this is a very expansive group of people that Paul is talking to. He is not just saying, if you deal with anxiety, don't have anxiety. He is saying, if there's inner turmoil, if there's war within you about anything that happens, if you do not have complete peace, fix it. Do something about it. We are to have complete and utter peace in Christ. And so with that, I think... If you're here and you don't know Jesus, that you identify with it too. I think you feel it too. I don't think this is just the church that's freaking out about stuff. I think the world around us is freaking out. I read a study about teenagers. Like Miles said, I'm our student pastor, so I read stuff about teenagers when it pops up. And this study was talking about the things that we think teenagers struggle with, the typical things that we're like, oh, we need to make sure they don't do this, this, and this, like alcohol and drugs, that kind of thing. Those rates are actually in decline. For the first time in a really, really long time, as they study teenagers, those rates are going down, which is really, really good news until the article points out that at the same time, rates of mental health and suicide, mental illnesses, are more than doubling the decline of those other things. And so this article also made the point that a lot of times we do a lot, a lot of studies on teenagers when in actuality, what we're studying in them is reflective of the society as a whole. 
And so Paul in this time, way back 2,000 years ago, is writing to the Philippians and saying, don't have anxiety in the face of all of this persecution and pressure. Don't have stress, don't have worry, don't have fear. When in fact, this is why I love scripture, because it was so true then, I think it's even more true for us now. You're probably not facing persecution for your faith in Christ in Auburn, Alabama today. There are Christians in this world who are, but you're probably not facing it. And so I think what this does is intensify this inner battle within us because the truth is our flesh and the enemy want to prevent us from being effective, from being used by the kingdom of God to having a real relationship with the Lord. So I think this is where the attack comes. It's on that inner world within us. And here's the thing is, Miles even talked about this last week too. The world is going to try to tell you answers. It's going to say you can have peace once you get financial security, once you get that job, once you get that guy, once you get that girl, once you move to this place. But the truth is they don't have the answer. Would you go to John? You don't have to go there. John 14, 27. We'll have it on the screen. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says to them, i got to find it. I thought I had it. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and be not afraid. So Jesus is saying, I'm giving you peace. He says it multiple times in a bunch of different places. He says, I'm giving you peace. But he also says, I'm not giving to you as the world gives. So how does the world give? The world gives with promises that can never fulfill what they say. And so the world is saying you can have it once you get security, once you get this job, once you get that house, once you get to the weekend, you'll finally have peace. And Jesus is saying, I don't give to you as the world gives. I am the prince of peace. What, did, what, did, what was the proclamation from heaven when Jesus was born? Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to men. Some of y'all thought I wasn't going to talk about Christmas, but I am. <laughs> Glory to God in the highest, peace on earth to men. And so... Jesus promises us peace. A lot of us in here claim Christ, but we also identified with the fact that I'm having this turmoil this Paul is talk- that Paul is talking about. I don't have peace on the inside of me. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with that? That doesn't make sense that Jesus promised us peace, and yet nothing we experience matches that. I know Jesus, but I don't know peace. I claim to know the Prince of Peace, but I don't experience peace. And so here's the thing I need to say before I kind of get to my my two points that I think the Lord gave me. We're not going to know perfect peace on this earth. And the reason for that is, is because Jesus is a source of all peace, and we won't know Jesus perfectly until we see him face to face. So if he comes back, great. If we go to see him, great. But we won't know perfect peace here. But the truth is that Jesus still promised us that we will experience peace And so the thing is, peace is not something that you're going to arrive at. It's not a place. It's not something where attack isn't going to come. But peace is a process. Peace is something that we have to practice. And so how do we do that? How do we do that? Point number one is surrender control. We have to surrender control. The irony of the control that we're surrendering is that it's only imagined or lack of control that we're surrendering in most of these situations. It's, I think I can control this situation, but it's not turning out how I want it. You have to give that up to God. It's, I wish I could really control what this person thought or what this person did, but you can't. You have to give that up to God. And so really the issue when we start talking about these inner struggles, these inner battles, is that we're being ruled by fear instead of faith. And we're either believing one of two lies, either that God is not for us or that he's not sovereign. 
And so the truth that you need to hear today is that God is for you no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, no matter how you talk, God is for you. He has been on your team since before you were born. He knows your name. He made you in your mother's womb. He is on your side. He's not mad at you. He's in love with you. And the other part is a lot of times we believe a lie that God isn't sovereign. If you don't know what that word means, sovereign, the sovereignty of God basically means he's in control and you are not. It means he's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He dictates what happens and how it happens and when it happens. You don't control your destiny. I'm sorry to tell you, you are not the captain of your own ship. You do not control your own fate. But how much more encouraging is it that the person who created the world, created you, he is the one holding your pen. If you are in Christ, he is holding the pen of your story. And so we need to understand that before we step into, we're going to read the rest of verse 6. Rest of verse 6. Back to Philippians, jumping all around. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, a lot of times when you start stressing something or worrying about something, an unhelpful answer that you'll get is just pray about it. Um, It's like, ah, I know that's the right answer, but I tried, it didn't really do anything. Um, the thing that we need to realize with this passage is Paul is not just saying, pray about it. Because if we actually do what Paul's saying in this verse, we're not going to be carrying the weight of whatever's stressing us out, whatever's freaking us out, whatever's bothering us. And so if you look, there's four words that Paul uses that all talk about prayer. Prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and request. All four of those words are translated prayer in other parts of the New Testament. And so he's actually giving us four different parts of prayer. And so what do we do? What is he talking about in this? Paul is saying in in a very similar picture, if you need a physical picture of this, think I'm breathing in oxygen and I breathe out carbon dioxide. I have to breathe in the truth of who God is and what he says about me and I have to let go of my request to him. Whatever's stressing me out, I don't have control of those, God, you do. And I know you're good and I know you're for me and I know you're in control and I have to preach to myself. You have to preach to yourself sometime. I know this is true, I know this is true, I know this is true. And so actually, if we look at present your requests to God, um, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, cast your cares on the Lord. It's a, it's a repetitive thing. And so, you know how I mentioned the imperative mood earlier, the mood of command? When you combine that with the present tense in Greek, I'm sorry, if this might be for one person in here, but I think it's going to hit for somebody. If you're talking about the imperative mood, a mood of command in Greek, and you use the present tense, the person saying this command is expecting you to do that thing over and over, and over, and over, and over. It's a continuous action, not a one-time thing. So you're like, I gave up, I I presented my request to God. I cast my cares on him. Why do I still feel weight? It's because you haven't given them up again. I had a friend all throughout college who, when she would get stressed about something, she would just go like this. I was like, what the heck did you just do? She was like, I just threw my request up to God. They're not mine. And then 10 seconds later, she'd do it again. I'm like, you just did, she's like, I got to do it as many times as it takes. And so that's the truth of this situation is that We have to surrender control and cast our cares on the Lord as many times as it takes. And so at first, it might be every 10 seconds. Lord, it's yours. I'm not in control. Lord, it's yours. I'm not in control. But then it's going to be every every couple minutes. 
and then it's gonna be every five minutes, and then it's gonna be every 10 minutes, and then it's only gonna be a couple times a day. And slowly but surely, you're gonna reorient your heart and reorient your mind and convince your flesh that it is not in control. It does not get to dictate what your life looks like. The one who created the world gets to dictate what your life looks like. So over and over and over again, we have to tell ourselves, God is in control and he is for me, and these things that are tearing me apart from the inside do not control what happens in my life. We give them up to God. We surrender control. We surrender control. We surrender control. If you need that in a, in a one-sentence line, when we surrender the inner world to the Prince of Peace, we release the past we cannot change and the future we cannot control. When we surrender our inner worlds to the Prince of Peace, we release the past we cannot change and the future we cannot control. And so what does Paul say? What happens when we, when we give up these anxieties? Verse 7 And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippi was a garrison town in Rome, which means it housed an entire Roman legion. They would be familiar with the sight of a Roman sentry standing guard. So this imagery is really, really important to them. And so Paul's saying the peace that God brings about is going to guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And he actually says this peace doesn't make sense logically. This peace surpasses, overcomes, is better than, is far greater than any mind, any thought, any logic, any power of thought that you could have. You can't think your way into this peace. You have to surrender to this peace. And what starts happening is you're going to be in a situation that you might have gotten stressed in, and all of a sudden you're going to be good. And the people around you are going to be like, why are you not freaking out? You just got told that you have cancer, but you seem so calm in the face of it. And you're going to say it's because the peace of God that transcends all understanding guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. It stands guard over our hearts and minds. It doesn't control, our thoughts and our feelings don't control us. This peace of God does. We surrender to God and we accept that peace. It surrounds us. And so this is where we get to point two. Peace is not just about emptying yourself. It's about fullness. So that's what point number two is accept responsibility. Accept responsibility. If you weren't here for the workout, your salvation message, Miles, is a couple weeks ago, it's the same kind of thing. It's we remind ourselves that God is in control, but we've got stuff to do. So we have to surrender that control, but there's a couple things that Paul says, these are the things that we have to do. Our response is active, not passive. So verse 8, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable... If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul, do you want to add any, anything in there? you want to open that up anymore? Give us any more options of what we can look at? And so when I've heard this preached before, what everybody always starts with is the word and worship, and that's where we always have to start. So we start with prayer. We go to the word because this is where all truth is found. That's why we want to give you a Bible if you don't have one. We listen to those bands that put out really good worship music. We still our hearts. We remind ourselves of the truth. But the truth is, Paul actually stole this list from a secular source. Paul didn't come up with that list of qualities. He took it from either Greek philosophers or Roman philosophers. We don't really know. But it's similar to, like, if I took a list of qualities from, like, the Bill of Rights or a kindergarten classroom. It's like any of these things on this 10 things, if these are our values in Mr. Miller's kindergarten class... Do those things. Anything that falls under any one of these categories, do those things. And so a lot of times what we do is when we just talk about the word and worship and prayer, we kind of bring ourselves into a little holy huddle over here. Bethel, Hillsong, the ESV, and my community group. 
I'm good. But the truth is what happens when we kind of do that, we stand over here, we cut the world off from us that we're trying to reach and we cut ourselves off from them. And so we are in the world, but not of the world. So we do have to actually interact with the world. And so the fact that Paul stole this list from a secular source blew my mind and kind of opened it up to, hey, there's things in this world that can point me back to Christ. It could be detrimental if I'm not careful. And that's why I have a community of people keeping me accountable. But there are things in this world that the world is like, this is good. And I'm like, yeah, it is good. Here's why it's good. Right? And so anything can be an idol, but everything should lead us to worship. Anything can be an idol, but everything should lead us to worship. I have two quick examples. One of them is ridiculous and about myself. The other one is really cool. The first, I'm I'm not kidding you. You're going to laugh, but I'm dead serious about this. This is what I thought of when I thought of this thing. I used to make an idol out of sports. I cared way too much. I wouldn't even recognize myself. I'd get so angry about it. I, I kept up with every single sport. And so I started to realize that this, rather than being a fun hobby is what I said it was, it was sitting on the throne of my heart instead of the Lord. And so I started realizing that. People started talking to me. I took a little bit of a break. I kind of stepped away. I still paid attention, but I didn't care as much. I was like, I don't have to watch every game. I don't have to pay attention to everything. And slowly but surely, now the Lord has changed that in my life to worship. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but I'm dead serious. Now when I pay attention to sports, what the Lord's showing me is his image in the people that are doing those things. He's showing me there's a crazy unity that comes about when a team plays really, really well together that isn't of themselves. They might not know the Lord, but they're still made in his image. And so there's things that they're doing that don't make sense apart from the Spirit of God. The first person that the Spirit was given to was an artist back in the Old Testament. That was the first one where it said the spirit of the Lord came on him and it was an artist creating stuff for the tabernacle of the Lord. There is creativity in this world that yes, the world says this is really, really good, but we can reclaim in the name of Christ and say it is good and here's why it's good. And so my other example is social media and not really for myself, but my friend, actually my brother-in-law, that's new. That's the first time I've said that. Um, My brother-in-law, Jonathan Fittner, about a year and a half ago, gave up social media, realized what it was breathing into him was not helpful. And so a lot of times we demonize social media because it's detrimental to us and it's detrimental in a lot of ways. But Jonathan is living proof that the Lord can flip that around and use it for good. So it's such a weapon of the enemy in his life. But recently he's gotten back on Instagram because that's really the only social media that's big. I'm sorry to break it to you parents. That's the big one, not Facebook. Um, (laughs) Facebook is awesome. Instagram is better. But he got back on Instagram. He's back on Facebook too, so you can find him on there. But on Instagram, TrueJFit, you're welcome. Go find him. But if you go look at his account, now what he's doing is he is getting fed through social media, and he's actually breathing life into other people. So something that was a weapon in the enemy's hands is now a weapon in the hands of God because Jonathan was said, what, what is this? It's an idol in my life. Okay, now it's leading me to worship. And so we have to remember that there are things in this world that we cut ourselves off from that we shouldn't, that we need to look at and realize that there, there's an awesome song that says, I see your heart eight billion different ways. And what it's talking about is of the eight billion people on this planet, each one is a unique expression of who God is because they're all made in his image even if they don't know Christ. And so we can't just stay with worship and the word. We have to expand it to what I look at, what I do, my job, I'm gonna take for the kingdom of God because we have that ability to claim it for the king.
So we'll jump down to verse 9. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I mentioned it briefly, but you can't really figure out what's an idol in your life without people around you. You have to have community. You have to have believers around you. That's why I couldn't get out of the insecurity those first couple years where I knew Christ. is because I was trying to do it by myself. And so Miles even mentioned it last week. There's a lot of times where Paul's like, look at me as I follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. And Miles was saying, he looks to a lot of you to see what you're doing. But the truth is, I've been following him as he's followed Christ for five years. And I look way more like Jesus because of it. And so when we start getting around people, and it's not just him. I have a group of guys. There's my wife. There's so many people in this church that have poured into me, that have encouraged me. One of the most vocal sitting right here, Dana Pate. I you have no idea. We get so fired up. Anytime she starts talking, I'm just like, yes. It's the eights, like she said. If you don't know about the Enneagram, just come on. But you have to have a group of people around you that are on the same page as you, that are fighting for the same thing, but you don't just stay with them, you move with them. You're on mission with them. That's not where you just stay safe and sit back. They're your safety place, but they're also your mission team. You step out with them. And so we look to Miles, we look to the people in this church. We know that we have to have people around us. And so we accept responsibility by taking control. We actively think about things that are going to bring us to Christ, and we do it in the context of community with people around us. And what happens? What happens, Paul? And the God of peace will be with you. And so he says peace twice in this passage. And the first one, he says the peace of God is going to protect you. The second time, he says the God of peace will be with you. And I think he's doing that to remind them that it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter how you fail or where you mess up. The God of peace will be with you. He has not failed and he will never fail. He is going to be with you. And if you don't know Christ, that is available to you today. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's stressing you out. It doesn't matter how many times you fall down and you're like, ah, I got stressed again or I messed up again. He's going to be with you. You can't do anything about that. You can't change that because you didn't save yourself in the first place. The God of peace will be with you. And with that, I'll invite you all to stand up. I'll invite the band up. And the truth that we got to realize is exactly what the world knows, that the world is chaos, that there's wars and rumors of wars, and through the midst of all that chaos, one stands alone, and his name is Jesus, that only one has stilled the storm, only one has calmed the seas, and his name is the Prince of Peace, and so it, it, it hits me every single time, but the Lord showed me the cross in a different way this week. In an eternal paradox, the thing that was the most violent moment in history, where not only humanity turned its back on its own savior, nailed his hands to a board, he suffocated in his own blood, but at the same time, the father, his closest relationship, his community, was pouring out wrath on him on our behalf. And so the paradox here, the irony is that in the midst of the most extreme violence this world has ever seen or will ever see, that moment established everlasting and perpetual peace. That nothing can change what he did there and nothing can stop the peace of God from coming to this earth. We don't feel it right now, we don't see it right now, but it is coming and there's nothing that can stop that. 
And so if you've heard nothing else, hear this. I am a guy just like you. There's no reason I should be up here holding this mic. There's no reason. There's nothing that makes me different from you that I'm standing up here. So hear that me, a guy just like you, am continually and perpetually overcome by peace because the Prince of Peace waged war on my behalf. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray for every person in this room. I pray for every person that they come in contact to with. Lord, the world wants to breathe in to us, but we know that you have breathed into us and we breathe that peace out into this world. And so, Father, I pray, would you come and move? If somebody is in here and doesn't know you, Lord, show them that they will not know peace without knowing you, but that peace is available here and now. And Lord, remind us in this room that know you, that we're not going to know that full life that you died for us to live until we start stepping into the peace that you promised us. Lord, we step and we surrender and we accept responsibility, and it's you who moves to us and brings the peace. We just open up our hands, Lord, and receive that from you. Lord, I pray, come and move in this place. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name.